You'll remember that, if you've been here over the last couple of weeks, that we're making our way through a pre-Easter series. We're, we're looking at some of the events of the week before Passover, some of the lead-up to the cross. We, we started with the triumphal entry and, and, and Jesus riding into Jerusalem to the adoration of the crowd, the king arriving in his kingdom. And then last week we saw him upsetting the temple, pronouncing judgment on dead old religion while, while, while healing the sick and the lame, and at the same time modeling faithful, powerful prayer to us. And what, what seems to be happening is that in the build-up to the cross and, and the, the full unveiling of the glorious gospel that we've, we've sung about already today, Matthew's making it clear what his kingdom of heaven that Jesus has been talking about through this book will look like. And who its king, Jesus, is. So this morning we've got these two stories. We've got 23 to 27 and then 28 to 32, and they both feed into that. And we'll look at the first one, and then we'll look at both together. But before we get into that, let me pray for us and, and for me. Father God, out, out of my weakness and inadequacy, Lord, please work for your purposes. By your spirit, please teach us this morning, show us yourself in your word. Prepare our hearts to respond. Challenge us for the week ahead and change us. Teach, encourage and equip us, please. Amen. So, verses 27 to 32. Um, at first glance, they, they look like a standalone story, don't they? The teachers of the law, the, the chief priests and elders come to Jesus. It's one of the famous moments, I think, in the gospel. They have this big question, the one that's on everyone's lips. After years of ministry, mostly in the countryside, Jesus has, has finally made his big entry into Jerusalem. And so in their eyes, he stepped up from the little league to the premiership. And he's arrived in Jerusalem and he's thrown the city into tumult. He, he's chucked the temple into disarray. And, and people are asking, who is this? Do you see that? Back in verse 10, the whole city is stirred and it asks, who is this? He's not yet a household name for them, but he's having an impact. And so, maybe not unreasonably, on what looks like the second or the third day for him in town, as he's speaking in the temple courts, the Jewish leaders come to him and essentially they ask the same question. Who, who is this? Is it okay for you to be speaking here? Should we allow this? It's not an unreasonable question. Before we'd let someone speak in church, you'd want us as elders to check them out, to be pretty confident that they'll be based in Scripture, that they're sound, whatever that means, that they won't be saying stuff that's wrong or damaging. The New Testament letters are full of warnings that people will come like wolves among the flock and they'll try to lead God's people astray. And, and so we need to be on our guard before we let people preach or teach at youth group or, or even home groups in junior church. And, and so there's a sense in which this question in verse 23 
is, is a good question. It's the right question for leaders to ask. By what authority are you doing these things? Who gave you this authority? Who are you, Jesus? Where do you get your teaching and your power from? And perhaps as stewards of God's temple, those whose responsibility is to tend his flock, should we be letting you speak or or are you a dangerous false prophet? That would be a good question. So is it a bit weird that Jesus doesn't give an answer? Is it a bit weird that he uses this slightly shifty rhetorical trick and asks them a question back which they can't deal with and then shifts on? If the focus of this section of Matthew is meant to be about showing who Jesus is, what he's like, how this king fits into his kingdom, why not just say it outright? Why the sneaky evasive stuff? Is is he a dodgy guy, this There's a couple of good reasons that we can make to what's going on here. Um, One is it's not Jesus' time yet. He's waiting a couple of days more for Passover. A straight answer now, something like, actually, I teach by my own authority. I'm the son of the living God. That authority and all authority has been given to me by the Father who loves me and who I see clearly and know intimately. Straight answer like that would have blown their minds. It would have been too much for those authorities to bear. And it would have triggered his arrest and trial too soon. Maybe he's being evasive because he wants to avoid that. Or along with that, another good response would be that Matthew might record this exchange anyway. Because the answer is there. The leaders already know it, don't they? They've not asked an honest question. There's an amazing irony, I think, in this little passage. What looks like Jesus being evasive, I I think it's actually him giving them a genuine opportunity to set the grounds for dialogue. A dialogue where they could understand who he is, where he's coming from. So he says, John's baptism, is that from heaven or from men? Back in in Matthew chapter 3, John the Baptist rocks up and he looks and he acts and he speaks like an Old Testament prophet, like an Elijah, like the promised herald of the Messiah. And his message is this, repent, the kingdom of heaven is near. And then he points to and baptizes Jesus. And along the way, he's got some choice words to say about the Pharisees and Sadducees. A brood of vipers, he says. John's baptism, where's that from? If, If these guys had only answered Jesus' question honestly, it might have gone very differently. They would have had a point to engage with him. If they'd been ready to humble themselves and say, yeah, okay, We think John was a prophet. He was right. Then Jesus could say, well, I'm the man that John was talking about. Come, find out more. Or if courageously they'd said, no, we disagree with John. Then at least there would be space for dialogue. Perhaps Jesus could say, well, I'm the guy John was talking about, but let's explore why you're not sure about him. 
But instead, they avoid it. They don't really want that discussion, do they? They've got this cynical but very astute dissection of the question in verses 25 and 26. If we acknowledge John, we have to acknowledge Jesus and our own faults, but we don't want to do that. But if we reject John, well, all the rest of Israel seems convinced that he's a prophet. In which case they're right. The temple speaking against him could have serious consequences. So it's not just an evasive story. Matthew does give us an answer to the question in a roundabout way. While also showing us this cynical and cowardly and insincere side to the religious authorities. Who is Jesus? Well, he is the guy that John was pointing at. He's the Messiah. He's the coming glorious king. But just as we heard from Matthew Weston last week, as Jesus comes to the temple, an opposition is also revealed between him and the Jewish leaders. And it's an opposition that he will pronounce judgment on. I think that's what we get if we we treat this as a little standalone passage, and I think that's valid. But at a second glance, there's more going on here. It's not just an isolated event. It's part of a longer narrative. So Jesus points these leaders back all the way to the beginning of Matthew's Gospel, Matthew chapter 3, John the Baptist. And we get a glimpse of the fact that they've already made up their minds on John. Back in Matthew chapter 3, John condemned them outright. He said, repent and change. They haven't. And they appear to be coming to Jesus to ask who he is now, but I think they've already made up their mind on him too. Several times through Matthew's gospel, we, we see the religious authorities testing and rejecting and plotting against Jesus. Even in in last week's passage, we see that their reaction to him is off. Look at verse 14 and 15. The blind and the lame came to him at the temple and he healed them. But when the chief priests and the teachers of the law saw the wonderful things he did and the children shouting in the temple courts, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. They've seen the poor and the crippled coming into the temple and being healed, and their reaction is disgusted anger. I think it's it's presented actually as a deliberate parallel here through this chapter. You you see the indignant rage of Jesus. He comes into the temple and he, he sees the temple court full of market traders and conmen, and he has to drive them out. And likewise, these elders and teachers of the law They feel so offended by something that Jesus is doing that they have to drive him out. And over this chapter and the next few, that feeling builds. Actually, it almost seems as if everything that Jesus says feeds into that. So in in verse 23, they're not coming to him with an honest question. It's a trap. They're giving him just enough rope to hang himself. Let him just say plainly who he is in public and they can legally arrest him for blasphemy. Never mind whether it's true or not. 
So what's offended them so much? It's insane, isn't it? Think, what, what would offend you? When are you indignant? Angry and disgusted? Perhaps it's the big following that he seems to have picked up so quickly. That these guys have trained and studied the law all of their lives. Jesus has been active for three years or so and the crowds are flocking to him. Perhaps it's envy. Or, Or perhaps it's partly the fact that both John and Jesus have had no problem about speaking out against the authorities. Perhaps they're trying to protect themselves or hold on to power and their influence over people. Maybe it's insecurity. Or perhaps there are the challenges and the call to repent stinging in them. And instead of penitence, they're reacting in anger. Perhaps it's that guilt and that wounded pride. I've got to say, those those things feel plausible to me. Those are the human kind of responses I, I see in myself when I'm challenged. How do you respond when your guilt is revealed or your status is questioned or when success is with other people rather than you? You might think more on that later, but those might all be part of what's going on here. But Matthew does draw out one thing, and in a moment we'll see that Jesus particularly picks up on that too. They seem to be offended by who it is that's coming to him. Again, look back into last week's passage. And verse 14, and it's not just the kids shouting Christ's praises. It's the blind and the lame coming into the temple courts that upsets them. It's the, the unclean. Those who are, appear to have been cursed by God. Those who by their tradition would have been excluded from the temple. How is it that the unrighteous are coming into our place? To our God? This is our place. We're the authorities here. This is our people, our righteousness. How dare you turn it upside down? As they see it, their their temple has been cast into disarray. And that's why they come to question Jesus. I think, though, they ask him the wrong question. They ask, who are you to teach these things? They kind of already know. And I think that maybe what comes next is Jesus beginning to answer the question that perhaps they should have asked. He gives them three parables. And we'll look at the first now and the next two over the next two weeks. But before we do that, it's worth a quick reminder of what parables are. If we don't get that, then we're liable to come away from them more confused and informed. Um, They're not just the Jesus thing. It seems, as far as we can tell, that parables were a fairly common teaching tool back at that time. That They weren't just little stories. They, They did help to illustrate the principles that are being taught, but not as simple analogies or metaphors. Rather than just being, being dry theory, the point of a parable is that it, it puts the ideas into an emotional context as well. They help the audience to, to understand how to feel and to react to what's going on. So the famous example is the parable of the sower. And, 
when Jesus tells that, you, you don't just get the fundamental theology coming through. You also get the sense of the hard work, the farmer's labor, and the sadness at lost seed and hard ground, and then the rejoicing in the harvest. Parables help us to make sense of where we fit into a picture. But they're not just sermon illustrations. Jesus has an extra purpose in using them. And again, back in the parable of the sower, he explains it. His disciples come to him confused and say, why do you always speak to us in parables? Can't you talk plainly? And Jesus says, the knowledge of the secrets of the kingdom of heaven has been given to you, but not to them. Those who have will be given more and they will have an abundance. As for those who do not have, even what they have will be taken from them. And then he goes on to quote Isaiah, who told Israel, you will be ever hearing but never understanding, ever seeing but never perceiving. Jesus uses parables to teach like that so that he can bless his people, so that he can convey clear understanding, teach them the realities of the kingdom of heaven. And yet, at the same time, the parables are opaque to those that reject him. He teaches like this as a form of judgment, a way of demonstrating, even reinforcing, the spiritual blindness of Israel's leaders. And as you skim ahead over the next couple of chapters, you, you see Jesus' teaching actually crystallizing the priesthood's position, swinging them further against him. It brings about the cross and resurrection. Judgment and blessing. So, as we look at this stuff this morning, and for the next couple of weeks, bear in mind it's difficult. It's hard stuff. Expect to be challenged. If we don't do a good job of that, then get your teeth into it for yourself. What's going on in this parable? Well, it fits with the question they've asked. The leaders have asked, who are you? What's your authority? What place do you claim to occupy in the kingdom of heaven? I think what Jesus does, he turns that question back on them. He asks, well, what do you think? What place do you think that you occupy in the kingdom of heaven? And we've got this simple but evocative story to show us where they stand before God. There was a man who had two sons. He went to the first and said, Son, go and work today in the vineyard. I will not, he answered. But later he changed his mind and went. Then the father went to the other son and said the same thing. He answered, I will, sir. But he did not go. That's a really simple story. But I think it would have resonated with his audience for two reasons. One is this very familiar picture of the vineyard. It, it turns up all through scripture as a picture of Israel and of God's blessing and God's kingdom. And sometimes people are being called to tend it. 
or they're being rebuked for not tending it, or sometimes it's the promise of a blessing that's still to come when the Lord establishes his rule. For the Israelites, this vineyard is a loaded image. It's rich in meaning. They know what Jesus is talking about. And that's why he uses it all over the place. We'll see it next week as well. But the second, I think more important here, the second reason it would have resonated is that there are two sons. And again, that's a rich theme for Israel. Throughout Genesis, as as the people of God is beginning to be picked out and established, that theme of two sons. Think of Noah's sons. He's got Ham, Shem, and Japheth. Ham disgraces himself, so he's out of the picture. And that leaves Shem and Japheth. And for some reason, God chooses Shem the younger son, to bear the promise, and Israel traced their lineage back to him. Think of Abraham's sons, Ishmael and Isaac. And for his purposes, God chooses Isaac, the child of the promise. He receives the inheritance of the covenant to be the father of the nation. Or think of Isaac's sons, Jacob and Esau. And again, God ends up passing the inheritance down to the younger son, who is frankly a pretty unworthy creep. But each time, Israel is descended from the correct branch of the family tree. They inherit the covenant. That is what makes them God's people. That's what defines them. And that's the sort of picture that Jesus is setting up here. These elders, these chief priests, they're so used to being able to define their secure position in the kingdom just through their ancestry, through the covenant they've inherited, and then their righteous behavior. But now Jesus is is overturning their claim. He's putting it on its head. Indeed, John the Baptist did exactly the same back in Matthew 3. Jesus isn't telling them anything new. John told the Pharisees and the Sadducees, don't think you can say to yourselves, we have Abraham as a father. I tell you that out of these stones, God can raise up children for Abraham. How do you find your place in the kingdom of heaven? What do you think? Jesus says it's not by birth or tradition or good behavior. Now in verse 29, that that first son, he is like the unrighteous, the unclean in Israel, those who deserve God's judgment, those that the authorities would want to exclude from the temple, to refuse your father's command in that patriarchal society, to refuse to work for the family business, for the family's gain. That That was terrible delinquency. He could expect a, a beating or a disinheritance. But it's the righteous looking son in verse 30. The one who pays lip service to the father. I will go, sir. It's this one who comes out looking worse. Because for all his outward appearance of respect, he's not done what was asked. And Jesus is lining that son up with the elders and the priests. You see, it's under their watch that the vineyard has gone untended. I think that's what's implied here. 
They're so horrified by the kind of company that Jesus keeps, by the unclean people that he's invited into the temple to be healed, to receive God's blessing. And it seems in verse 31 and 32 that they're particularly offended by the sinners that Jesus is giving access to the kingdom of heaven. It's outrageous to them, isn't it? Isn't the kingdom of God meant to be for God's good people? For the children of the promise? For them? But I think what Jesus is doing is using the very presence of these sinners in Israel as the demonstration that they have not gone to tend the vineyard. They have not shepherded the flock. Otherwise, why would the people be in this state? In fact, we would say without knowledge of Jesus, they have neither the ability nor the desire to care for the Lord's people. And that's why, to their outrage, they're seeing sinners coming into the temple of Jesus. Well, they are more and more on the outside. Jesus said to them, Truly, I tell you, the tax collectors and the prostitutes are entering the kingdom of God ahead of you. For John came to show you the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him, but the tax collectors and prostitutes did. And even after you saw this, you did not repent and believe him. It's a sharp criticism. But in his grace, it's not just a message of judgment. Even here, the parable is leaving an invitation hanging to them. See, the the sense of the parable isn't the harsh boss who is going to decide which employee to keep and which to fire. It's the father and his sons. They're his boys. He loves them both. He wants them both to work with him in the vineyard. He would love them both to come back to him. They could both bring gain. They could both share in the fruits of the labor. They only need to obey. And the command for them to obey, it's so simple. It's not about their priestly righteousness. It's not about adherence to the law. It's the same command John gave. The same command that their weaker brothers and sisters have already responded to. Repent and believe. So a few chapters before this, some of these guys came to Jesus and they asked him for a sign from heaven and he said no. He said, a wicked and adulterous generation looks for a sign, but none will be given it except the sign of Jonah. And Jonah was swallowed by a whale and and then vomited out onto land and it represented Christ's death and then resurrection. But the point of the book of Jonah is that God's grace extends so far that even Nineveh, which is pretty much the worst, most horrible place on earth, even Nineveh repents and is spared. Jonah, self-righteous, judgmental prophet Jonah, we don't know what becomes of him. But if if God will show mercy and forgiveness to Nineveh, 
If he'll pardon the prostitutes and the tax collectors and invite them into his kingdom, if he'll pour out healing and blessing even on the unclean, the blind and the lame and bring them into his temple courts, if he'll do all of that, then wouldn't he joyfully forgive and welcome these lost priests? God loves his people. They're his children. And this invitation is hanging there for these elders and teachers to grasp hold of. How can they find a place in the kingdom of heaven? What do you think? Repent and believe. The kingdom of heaven's near. He's not telling them anything new. Joyously, we know from the rest of Scripture, from the rest of the New Testament, that, that some of the Pharisees, some of the leaders, they did ultimately respond to this message. They did become disciples and followers of Jesus. But parables being what they are, blessing as well as judgment, we get the distinct impression that many of this audience had their hearts hardened and they refused the testimony of John. And they refused and executed Jesus. And they ignored uh, and rejected his resurrection. And they persecuted his church. And the tax collectors and the prostitutes entered the kingdom of heaven, but they had no place. How can you find a place in the kingdom of heaven? Only repent and believe in Jesus. There is no other way. What, What do we take from this? What, what do we chat over as we go home later? What, what do we remind ourselves of through the week? I think it, it's just that same cool idea. How do I find my place in the kingdom of God? Repent and believe in Jesus. That's all I need. We sung and prayed beautiful words about the, the gospel and, and the way that Jesus has opened the doors that people like us could come back to him. Take hold of it, repent and believe. I think two particular aspects of that need to be brought out. First, see who is streaming into the kingdom of heaven. It's not the ministers and the preachers and the pastors or or the people who go to church twice on Sundays or the, the givers or the big prayers, or, or the evangelists. It, it's not the goodies and the gospel heroes. It, it's the sinners and the outsiders. It's the ones who, who should be condemned. And the, the ones who, when seen clearly, aren't fit for polite company. Tax collectors and, and prostitutes. It, it's the fraudsters. And the benefits cheats or corrupt bankers and the sex workers. I'd love this to be the kind of church where this goes without saying. But this is not a place reserved for perfect or righteous or holy people. If if you're just visiting, welcome. If you're testing ideas out, if you wouldn't call yourself a believer then please don't be taken in by our, our polite facade. We are so much worse than we look. Yeah. 
not just in terms of competence, but you know, sometimes it bobs to the surface, doesn't it? And Christians look like appalling hypocrites because we, we see how angry we get at tiny things. The stuff that the people we love do, and it just riles us. Yeah. Or, or we see how selfish we are. Or how lazy at work. Or the way that we indulge guilty and greedy appetites. But much more often it, it, it's hidden below the surface in our secret places. Please don't be taken in. The church is not a place reserved for the righteous. I don't know if you've ever heard that illustration of the, the DVD of your life. With all the gory details. All those thoughts. And then that being played where your friends can see it. And doesn't it make you cringe with horror? It, it does for me. We're not righteous. But that's okay. Jesus' kingdom is for people like that. For people like me, for the, the liars and the cheats and the fools. The gates are open. Just repent and turn and believe and he will welcome you into his kingdom. And what's staggering is that then he begins to remove your burdens and he begins to change you. And hallelujah, hosanna, God saves. We're a church of sinners. We can be honest, but we must be honest about that. We can confess it together. We never need to hold back from communion with each other because we're not good enough. That's the point. Nothing you have done has put you beyond the reach of his grace. Nothing you have done means that you don't need it. But his invitation stands and the temple gates are flung open to us. How do I find a place in the, the kingdom of God? I repent and believe with all of the other sinners. Second thing I'd like to bring out. A, a risk with parables is that we already know what we're supposed to learn. And so we read them with our teacher's pet heads on. And, and we know who we're meant to be like. And so we focus on that, on the first son in this case. But the thing is, Jesus is using these parables to teach his people. And we most need lessons when we're in the wrong place. So it's always worth putting yourself in the other guy's shoes. Whoever's the butt of the story. Think of the parable of the sower again. It doesn't actually say much to the people who are good soil. I think it assumes that the audience are a thorny, shallow and hard ground like me, Right? So the question here we should ask is, when are we like these leaders? When are we like the second son? When does our indignation come up to the top? Now they, they heard John's testimony and they didn't believe it. Even more, they've now seen one greater than John. They, they've seen Jesus healing and teaching and welcoming the lost into the temple. And how do they react indignation 
I can think of friends for whom this was the hurdle that stopped them investigating Jesus further. It wasn't historical evidence for Jesus, that's solid. It wasn't questions about how science fits with religion or, or the mismatch between evangelical views and modern day life. Those are, are sidelines. It was the insult of being lumped in with other sinners. The indignity of a call to repent. I'm not a bad person. I've no need for this. I'm not weak. I don't need a crutch like you. But Jesus says, come to me. Come to my kingdom. Repent and believe. It's not a question of dignity. It's an offer of life. If that's you, let me encourage you to try it out. Taste and see. Read through one of the Gospels. Maybe Mark. It's short and it's clear. See how it presents a good God in Jesus. Open yourself to challenge. Talk it over with a friend. Don't miss out on a wonderful offer. The kingdom of heaven is open. But even as believers, when are we indignant? When are we quick to reject? I think that's something we just have to chew over again and again. and Be alert to as it crops up in our hearts. When do we fail to tend the vineyard? I failed to look after those that the Lord has put with us or under us to shepherd his flock. When, when do we resent the demands that that person or that ministry makes on our time? When do we get frustrated by how weak or how foolish or how sinful they are? Really, are you still on that? When do we not even open ourselves to that responsibility and hold back? When do we feel righteous? Are, are there people who've got no place in my kingdom? Those are good times to bring our minds back to this passage. We enter the kingdom only by grace. Along with all of the other weak, foolish sinners. Jesus says those who've been forgiven much will love much well, let us love much also and in humility put our pride to one side and serve in our father's vineyard he would love us to join him how do I find my place in the kingdom of heaven I, I repent day by day I, I need to turn away from and reject my old ways Fix my eyes back on Jesus, the giver of life. We're going to have an excellent opportunity to do that with communion in a moment. But let, first, let's pray.